please. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8, our text tonight, verse 17 verses, and let us pray. Father, our struggle is to come uh, to all of these texts in Matthew in such a way that they speak to us anew as we go through this study as, as a church family. And our desire, Father, our, our dream for this study is to be so enriched with the knowledge of Jesus and, and to be driven even deeper into the, His person that we come out of it, Father, uh, com- completely, com- completely uh, redone and retooled in not only our thinking, but especially in the way that, that we live in this world. For we seek to be conformed to His image. And tonight, Father, uh, we pray that, that the danger of, of thinking that we are too familiar with these passages, the temptation to think that we have mined them until they, uh, there are no more, no more veins of gold within them to, to, to bring out and to be blessed by and to be made enriched by, that we will overcome this, Father, through your help tonight by giving us eyes that see and ears that hear. For we seek, Father, we seek to always hunger and thirst for a knowledge of you that that drives us deeper in our love and and heavier in our commitment, Father, to follow you all the days of our life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, you don't have to read the Gospels very long before being impressed with just the sheer numbers of the miracles that, that Jesus performed as I mentioned this morning, at the end of chapter 4, verses 23 through 25, you have this, uh, this very general listing of the, the healings that Jesus performed. That leads into Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount. And before we would um, ever think that Christianity is just about uh, high theology and the, 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 the very profound uh, theological principles of, of the Sermon on the Mount, as soon as we break out of the Sermon on the Mount at the end of chapter 7 and get into chapter 8, what we find is Jesus being encountered by a leper. And in the first four verses of chapter 8, he heals a leper. And then in the next eight verses, he heals the centurion's servant. And then in verses 14 and 15, he heals Peter's mother-in-law and then in verses 16 and 17, as we ended in Matthew chapter 4, there's this listing of, of healings in general. There is a tremendous number of miracles at the beginning and throughout the Gospel of Matthew. The big question for us, as we try to think theologically about these texts, is number one, what do they mean? And then number two, what do these miracles tell us about Jesus? If you, if you don't get the miracles, I, I think we'll be hard-pressed to, to get Jesus. This, th- these miracles are very important. And here's the issue that I think that a lot, of us, a lot of us face when it comes to the miracles, especially those of us that struggle with our faith or those of us who have not quite gotten to the point where we've committed ourselves to Jesus completely. You know, there is this issue that we need to be honest about when it comes to the miracles. In our culture, in our age, the only other people with superpowers are fictional characters. That's a struggle. 
We have uh, legends. We have uh, you know the, the stories of Merlin and his great power of healing and, and, and the such. We also have modern fiction. We have the comic book heroes. We have Superman. But Christ and his miracles are different, and we're going to look at them from three different angles. The first is this. These miracles are proof of his identity. The miracles are a proof of his identity. The last verse of our text, verse 17 of chapter 8, is a quote out of Isaiah chapter 53, and specifically verse 4. And Matthew tells us that the reason all of these miracles were taking place from Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 16, is that it was to fulfill Scripture. Now, why tell us that? Well, as you know, as you've been studying in your, your Bible classes, one of the reasons that Matthew has written his gospel and written it in the way that he has with all of these Old Testament scriptures being quoted throughout the gospel and the many times that Matthew says these Old Testament scriptures were being fulfilled in Jesus. They were being fulfilled in that very act. This was to fulfill the Old Testament scripture. It was in order for the Old Testament scripture to be fulfilled. All of these things were to instill faith in the people that were reading, mainly Jewish, a Jewish audience at first, but it was to instill faith for them to have faith created in them in the Christ. There are other places. In, in John chapter 2 at the weeding, uh, the, the weeding, the wedding feast in Cana, where Jesus turns the water into what? Into wine. And Jesus does this miracle, and the disciples put their, what? Their faith. They put their faith in Jesus. Now one of the reasons that Jesus does the miracles is to show us that He is the divine Son of God. And look how Matthew does this through this story of the miracle that happens with the centurion there in Capernaum. In verse 9, the centurion says that he is a man under authority and that he has men under his authority. In other words, the centurion is saying that he has been given this sphere of authority. I can tell a man to come and he comes. I can tell a man to do this, and he does it. And within that sphere of authority, the centurion's, the centurion's word is law. Within that sphere of authority, to not obey what that centurion had to say was to bring about some dire, uh, some, some, some dire retribution upon you. His word was law. And then he, having said that, he says to Jesus, I understand that you have a sphere of authority and you don't even need to come to my house. In other words, what the centurion is saying is that I understand that the whole world is your sphere of authority. Just think the thought. Just say the word and it happens. And the centurion is recognizing in Jesus that he is not some kind of magician that needs to come into the room with, with all of the hocus pocus. And the miracles are part of the evidence of who Jesus is and the news of them had been spreading throughout all of Galilee. And this is perhaps how the centurion came to think this way about Jesus. I mean, how else would the centurion have known that Christ could do this had he not been thinking about Jesus and the things that he had been hearing about him and maybe had heard him himself say throughout all of Galilee? And at some point, the centurion comes to the conclusion that this must be the Son of God, not unlike another centurion at the end of the Gospels who came to the same conclusion that Jesus was the Son of God by the way that he watched him die. Now, when you think about Jesus and these miracles, 
you know, you, 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 you encounter from time to time people who really, really want to believe, but they really want this watertight argument, leak-proof argument, that there is a God. And if they only had this watertight argument for the existence of God, then they would believe. But here's the thing. What if God does not give us a watertight argument, but instead He gives us a watertight person? which is what he does in Jesus. The sum total of Christ's life is the compelling argument. Which leads to a second thing. Not only are these miracles a proof of, of Jesus, his own actions, accompanied by his words, accompanied by the, 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 the power of his, 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 his countenance and his personality as he becomes involved and his, his life intersects other people. All of that is this compelling argument for the centurion that Jesus is who he says he is. But they are also not just this proof, but they're a pointer to the future. The, the, you know, the, the first point is one that I think that we've all dealt with uh, in our Bible classes and, and through the years, that, that these miracles were a proof of who Jesus is. But they're also, I think, a pointer to the future. The miracles are not just a raw demonstration of power. If the miracles were this, then Jesus could have done a Superman trick, right? If all that mattered with the miracles was that Jesus would do something that was so spectacular that nobody could deny it, which He was doing anyway with the miracles... Then, then he could have done it. Like Superman. You know, in, in one of those uh, middle versions of uh, series, trilogies of movies on Superman uh, with Christopher Reeves, you'll m remember this one scene where Lois Lane dies at the end of one of the movies and Superman is so overwrought with, 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 uh, with, with grief and with sadness that he actually begins to fly through the universe and spin around the world the opposite direction and counterclockwise rather than clockwise in order to turn the... the, the I, I mean, this is really far-fetched, right? I mean, and he spins the world backwards 24 hours so that he's able to save Lois Lane by getting to her a day early, a day before she dies in order to, you know, to sort of get her off the track to, or the path to her own death. I mean, if, Jesus, if all Jesus needed to do was a, a naked demonstration of power, he could have done that like Superman with the x-ray vision. And, you know, he's standing out there in the middle of Capernaum and he goes, hey, you see that mountaintop over there? Use his x-ray vision and zip the top of the mountain off. But Christ never does that. Again, we ask the question, why? The miracles are not simply naked displays of power. They are actually a pointer to where Jesus is headed with all of these things. Think back to the miracle stories. Do they not virtually, all of them, virtually deal with human suffering of some sort? So old scholar from the 1800s by the name of B.B. Warfield who wrote a, a very famous book on the miracles called Counterfeit Miracles. And at the very beginning of the book, he, he writes this. Listen carefully. He says, The number of the miracles which he wrought may, be easily, may easily be underrated. It has been said that in effect he banished disease and death from Palestine for the three years of his ministry. If this is exaggeration, it is pardonable exaggeration. We ordinarily greatly underestimate his beneficent activity as he went about, as Luke says, doing good. Now, I think that it is an exaggeration, but Warfield makes an incredible point. 
if the miracles are not just naked displays of power, but went into the heart of human suffering, they point us way back in the past, and they also, if this is true, they point us way forward into the, into the future. I mean, think, think about the, the miracles and how they point us way back to the way that the world was when God made it. In other words, the miracles point us to, to the way the world was and the way that God wanted it to be. When Jesus is feeding the, the multitudes, the 5,000 at one point and 4,000 in the other, it harkens back to a time when there was no such thing as hunger and malnutrition and swollen bellies in the world. And when Jesus is healing the lepers and the fevered and the paralyzed and, and the demon-possessed, it points back to a time when there was no such thing as a body weakened with disease and sickness and vulnerable to demonic powers. And, and when Jesus, in, 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 Matthew, um, uh, in Mark chapter 4, stills the storm, it reminds us of a time when nature was our friend and when it cooperated with humans. People were not being wiped out by tornadoes and tsunamis and earthquakes. The, the miracles harken back to a time before there was sin all over the place and everything broke apart. I mean, theologically speaking, the miracles are not a suspension of the natural laws, but a restoration of the natural laws, the way that things were always meant to be. Death and decay are the intruders in God's creation, and the miracles push them back just for a moment in order, us, in order for us to see what God is doing through Jesus. And in a world that is demonic and unnatural and evil, Jesus' miracles uh, open that door so slightly in order for us to see what the world really was supposed to look like and what it will look like in the future. And that's why I think these miracles not only remind us of the way things were always intended to be when there wasn't the human suffering and there wasn't the uncooperative nature, but it also points us into the future. I love verse 11 in the middle of this healing story. Jesus says in astonishment at the faith of this centurion and who he is and the power that is going to be displayed in the healing of the servant, he says, I say to you, that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, it seems to me, that when God comes back and He heals everything and restores everything and renews everything, then it's going to seem like a big feast for the people of faith. One last thing uh, to notice about these miracles is that they are a pattern for salvation. Uh, last week we, we looked at uh, Matthew chapter 4 and the, the temptation passage, uh, the first, uh, first ten verses of, of Matthew chapter 4. Think uh, carefully about how Christ was, was tempted by Satan. You're hungry after 40 days and 40 nights without food. Turn these stones into bread and you can eat. And then Satan in, in the second one takes Christ to the highest point of the temple and tells him to jump off and in and, and tempting Jesus in this way, he quotes Psalm 91 with the assurance that God's angels are never going to allow Christ's feet to hit the ground very hard. Turn these stones into bread. Jump off of the highest point of the temple and like Superman you'll fly. That's the temptation in many respects, in another way of stating it. The temptation 
is to be Superman. In other words, invulnerable. If Christ trusts God, then He is going to be vulnerable. If Christ trusts God, then He is going to be very vulnerable. The incarnation has made Jesus so. You can't kill Superman. But the incarnation has made Christ killable. And, and notice what Matthew says about uh, the, the miracles of healing in verse 17. In the NIV, he says, He took up our infirmities, He carried our diseases, which is, is, is Matthew you, you know, uh, uh, going back to Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 4. The New American Standard puts it this way. He Himself took our infirmities. He took our weaknesses. He took those things that enfeeble us. And He is carried away. That is, sort of metaphorically speaking, Christ has gathered up our diseases and carried them away from us. So if Jesus comes as a judge, in all His heavenly holiness, to destroy evil, how would we not be destroyed in the process? I mean, humans are part of the problem too, right? In fact, we're the ones that introduced the spiritual disease in the first place. So how does judgment come without us not being judged in the process? There's only one way for Jesus to end evil without ending us, and that was to first not come as a judge, but to come as a Savior. And as a Savior, to take our sin, to take our iniquity, to take our infirmities with all of its ramifications and implications of disease and infirmity upon Himself, which is precisely what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 tells us that He did at the cross. And so Matthew, I think, is telling us something incredibly special about these miracles. They foreshadow the cross. as Jesus is taking, according to the special servant who is going to deal with sin in Isaiah, the latter part of Isaiah, primarily chapter 53, the way that he does it is by taking it on himself. And when Matthew says that he healed a mother-in-law and he healed a centurion's servant and when he healed a leper, and when he healed all of these people that were suffering in tremendous pain, and they were demon-possessed, and they were paralyzed, and they were full of weakness in their body and mind, it was fulfillment of what Jesus came to do in Isaiah 53. And so it becomes a pattern for us. Every time we read a miracle story, it is a reminder of what Jesus came to do to bear Himself our sins and our weakness and everything that is terrible about us in order for us, when He comes back the second time as a judge, to not destroy us when everything else is judged. You know, the greatest miracle, I think, in all of our lives, those of us who have ex experienced God's grace, is is, you know, we can think about it in terms of the Incarnation and the special mystery that that is. We can think about it in water into wine. I mean, there, there's all kinds of miracles that, that grab our fancy and grab our imagination. But, but, but more profoundly than any other is the miracle of God's love 
that would allow His Son to come to the cross and die for us. For Him to experience all of the forsakenness of our sin in order that we would not have to experience that forsakenness at the end of time. For Him to live the life that we should have lived and to die the death that we should have died in order for us to sit at that banquet table with all of the sons of God at the end of time. And every time that we read one of these miracle stories in Matthew's Gospel or Mark or Luke or John's, what we're being reminded of is that God is changing the world. And the greatest is by changing the human heart. Bob's going to lead us in a song right now. And maybe your heart and your soul and your mind has, has, uh, has, has, been, has been torn and has been hurt and has been damaged and you've suffered and you feel the woundedness. When, when we hear on the radio somebody singing about a broken heart, you identify with it because that's where you are right now. Jesus not only brings healing, but it's a healing for all of eternity. And He is the one that can bind up the wounds in our hearts and can, and can mend our souls in such a way that, that there is blessing after blessing after blessing that comes into our life. And even if we find ourselves in, in dire straits again, which is part of being in a world the way that it's, it's, it's been tampered with sin and devastated by it. And even though we might find ourselves in a tight spot again because of the healing that comes to us through Jesus' cross, uh, a healing that restores our relationship with God eternally, one in which our consciences have been cleansed because our sins have been forgiven and washed away in baptism. We have, we have experienced the joy in knowing that the Creator of the universe knows our name. We have this peace that passes understanding because even though we find ourselves in dire straits, we know that we're more than conquerors through Christ. We know that if God is for us, who can be against us? That there's nothing that separates us from the love of God. If you've never experienced that kind of blessing, but on the other hand, you've been struggling with a lot of turmoil inside of your soul, tonight is the night to get rid of it and to allow the miracle of God's forgiveness through your faith and what Christ has done for you. G give up any, any illusion of trying to do this on your own. The, the difference between the, between the gospel of Christianity and every other religion is that between good news and advice. When we hear that advice, it's always about achieving something. It's always about, you know, you do these three steps or you find this kind of, this, this kind of, um, of, uh, of, of enlightenment through the kinds of things that you accomplish and you'll get to a certain place. But it's always about you doing something and doing something. And you might get inspired by it from time to time, but when you look back at it, it's very burdensome. It's about doing something. It's about doing something so perfectly and without fault that you're able to get to point D down the road. The gospel is not like that at all. The gospel is about a fact that has happened in history. It's historical fact and it's happened in order to change your life. And you have to decide, do you accept it or not, through faith. And if you're willing to do that tonight, we're going to have a couple of our shepherds down here at the front, and they will talk to you all night, any of us will, to talk to you about the special blessing that comes when you come into Christ and Christ comes into you. And we'd like for you to come down and talk to these shepherds now as we stand, and Bob leads us in the song. Let's stand and sing together. <laughs>